0: So it's fair to say that everything is changing. That's an obvious, and that's okay. You know, recently I read that close to a third of U.S. adults now consume their news on digital devices, and it's a growing number of people who are consuming their news off social media. I mean, teenagers, for the most part, are getting their news from TikTok, I got to tell you, a lot has changed since I remember back in the day. I know, I'm going to do the old man thing. But life was, you'd wake up in the morning and you got your newspaper, you read the news in the morning. Maybe you caught a little bit of news on the radio on the way to work. And then, of course, it was the evening news after dinner. And again, it's all right. Life is changing. It has to. It's just part of the natural process. But no matter how much technology changes... People still want the news because people still need to be informed. Now, it was talked about earlier on this podcast that local news is kind of making a big return. Our next guest is going to share her thoughts about that. And she's got some interesting thoughts about, well, the next generation of journalists that are coming up. Local, local, local. Ask Lynette Clementson her thoughts on the future of journalism, and she'll tell you it's all about the local. Lynette is the director of the Wallace House, the Knight Wallace Fellowship for Journalists, and the Livingston Awards at the University of Michigan. She's also a contributing editor for Politico. And there was a lot that Lynette got me thinking about when it comes to the current state of journalism and the future of the industry. Now she had quite a fascinating career that has taken her around the world. And she's now in a position to help train young reporters to expand the news industry in in this constantly changing world. Lynette started her career after college in Hong Kong at the Bureau for Newsweek. And as she describes it, that experience pretty much opened up a massive world for her.
1: Oh my gosh, I I mean, in many ways, that was the best time of my career. I was, I had a strong interest in China. I had, I went to school in the late 80s and Tiananmen Square had happened. And so in the same way that 9-11 shaped many young journalists who were then suddenly interested in, in learning Arabic and learning about Islam and learning about different cultures, I think that Tiananmen Square in 1989 really shaped my interest in international news. And at the time, you know, it it wasn't like there were a large number of African-American journalists studying China and wanting to work in China. And I think that's probably still the case. I, I did work for Newsweek and I did work for the New York Times and I did work for NPR, but I think I really benefited from having started in the field where the work was a bit scrappier and you had to really be on your toes a lot. And so um, I arrived in Hong Kong in in uh, 1994. And then from there, you know, was got to be part of Newsweek's team, got to cover Southeast Asia. And so, you know, I think that experience of covering international news really made me a better national journalist when I came back to the United States. And I I just wouldn't trade that time for anything. I think it opened my eyes to so much of the world. And, And, you know, journalism is one of these professions. Sometimes people ask me if they need a degree in journalism. And... It is something really that you learn best by doing, uh, and I was lucky to have great editors, um, who were pretty tough, <laughs> pretty tough, and and really helped me learn the craft.
0: From Newsweek in Hong Kong, you came back to the the United States, then you went to the New York Times.
1: No, I came back uh, in nineteen in late nineteen ninety eight to work in Newsweek's Washington bureau. And again, sort of I have these these major events that sort of, that I think framed my career in print. When I arrived back in the United States in August, September of 1998, it was the Clinton impeachment trials. And I was, even though I had done a lot of things in Southeast Asia and I think kind of made my mark in in the Hong Kong bureau. When I came to Washington, I hadn't been in the United States in six years. I was the very, 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 very junior person in uh, a bureau working on a big story. And so when the the whole office was abuzz with this Clinton impeachment scandal and, and the Star report came out, he released that report at a kinkos a couple of blocks from the white house and and we had to be there standing outside the kinkos to wait for the report to be handed to us and and so because everyone else was extremely busy and i was the the very low person on the totem pole in the bureau my job was to go stand outside the kinkos and get that report back to the office as fast as i could and and that report if you remember had all kinds of very salacious details in it about a stained dress and all manner of misdeeds. And uh, I remember getting this report and flipping through it and calling back into the bureau and saying, "Oh my gosh, there's a, there's a cigar and there's a dress in there," and and running it back to the bureau. And that's how I started uh, working as a Washington-based reporter.
0: Was that a big transition for you when you when you came back?
1: It was a big transition. In a lot of ways, I mean, I I felt that I remember feeling that Washington was a very parochial place, very myopic, and um, everyone thought every every turn of the screw was so very important. And I I guess I was approaching things where I didn't think the things that people thought were so consequential were as consequential in the grand scheme of things. I think in that way, it was a bit difficult to adjust, but it was also very exciting. And I and I think that that, that was a time, you know, several years before the iPhone came out and when news magazines still had a, a sort of distinct role to play, I loved, the weekly news magazine, I, I think actually, I would love to see the weekly news magazine make some sort of a comeback. I, I, I think there's an argument to be made that, that we actually need a weekly news magazine, a really strong weekly news magazine now because we're so flooded with information. And there's not, you know, I loved that function of being able to step back and say, what happened last week? And everything just moves like a bullet train now. Um, and I think there's tremendous journalism happening, but it, it's all coming so fast. And I think sometimes we lose that perspective.
0: You were the founding editor, right, of of uh, The Root? Of The Root. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and, and that experience.
1: The very short version of the story was that, you know, Newsweek at the time was owned by the Graham family, that owned the Washington post. It was owned by the Washington post company. And so I had worked for the Washington post company by being a member of newsweek. And then I I went to the New York times and in 2007, the Washington post company came back to me and said that they wanted to try to start a website that that was focused at an African-American audience interested in politics. And at the time, it was very clear that, that digital was <laughs> becoming where things were moving. And this was a project that Don Graham, who was the head of the Washington Post company, was starting with Henry Louis Gates Jr. And they needed an editor. So I left the New York Times, which was, like, which was something I thought I would never do. you know, And we just jumped in the deep end and started this website called The Root. And we did that in the fall and early winter of 2007, and we launched in January of 28, And, and sorry, in 2008. And um, it, it turned out to be a very good time to launch a website <laughs> focused on, on Black news consumers interested in politics, because we launched two days after the South Carolina primary, and Barack Obama was ascending and soon it would become clear that he was the candidate. And so this thing that I thought was going to be a slow learn of how to build a website was just bananas. <laughs> like it was, we, we were working 12, 15 hour days. Uh, we had a staff when we started of three people with a website, a proprietary website that was big and clunky and hard to run. Uh, I got better over the years, but in that first year, it was wild and and extremely fun, and and we were able to, um, you know, identify new new voices, and it was an important time to do that. At the time, you know, there had been those buyouts had started, news was starting to really change, and I think a lot of news organizations realized that they had been reconfigured in such a way that they actually had very few journalists of color and very few women in key roles in a political year that was all about two candidates, one of whom was a woman and one of whom was a Black man. And the cable news channels were scrambling, looking for voices, people who could talk about things. And we had some really smart writers and. We're carving out a new space where we could take a look at politics from a, a more commentary angle. I have very mixed feelings about where that has all gone now, but at the time, I think I thought we filled, we, that we filled a void in the market.
0: We're talking with Lynette Clementson, director of the Wallace House, the Knight-Wallace Fellowship for Journalists, and the Livingston Awards at the University of Michigan. She's also a contributing editor for Politico, and we've been talking about her experience coming up in journalism first as a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong, then her transition to covering politics and social issues in the U.S. for the New York Times and for The Root. Now, remember, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, and Podbean. And remember, you can always find us at thereporterstudio.com or on our YouTube channel under The Reporter Studio. And that's also where I'd love to hear from you. If you got any questions, comments, anything about journalism, you don't have to be a journalist. I mean, I actually do want to hear from anybody who's not a journalist and your questions about the industry. Your questions about how we find and make the news. Remember, go to reporterstudio.com and you can post your comments or questions there. By the way, you can also find a link there to Lynette and her work at the University of Michigan on our website. I'll also post links on the YouTube and LinkedIn pages, but let's get back to our conversation with Lynette and talk about how audience behavior has changed over the years. First, though, let me ask you about the audience. And how do you think over your career the the needs and opinions of the audience have changed? What do you think about you know how the audience their their perspective, their perception, and their desires for what whatever they want has changed?
1: I think it's been both. I think that in those early days of the web, we made Assumptions that things couldn't be over six hundred words, and people had very short attention spans, and they, you know, wanted things very quick. And as we see now, actually, people want much deeper, substantive content—things that they can spend time with—but um, they want it more on their terms. They want to listen when they want to listen or watch. Um, and they want to be able to carve out the bites on their own, you know, uh, rather than be be really driven by what is a traditional clock um, for broadcast. And so, I, I I do think that all of our consumption habits have changed. But I think that I think that in journalism because the business model had changed. And in many cases, news organizations were just scrambling for their survival. And, and so we looked at trends and ran toward them in many cases without remembering what are our principles and, and what, are, what is our mission? What are we re- really bound uh, and committed to doing? And so I think many news organizations lost their way. I think we certainly ran toward whatever shiny penny looked like survival.
0: Well, do you think, I mean, going back to what you said a little while ago, is that, you know, we need more reporting and less opinion. That, you know, that's when, you know, around that time, I think, is when you had, like, every cable channel at that point had news news. And you had so many different shows, and all of a sudden, a lot of the shows in primetime weren't the news, they were commentators.
1: And so do you and think so, that, do you,
0: is that is that the shiny penny you think that that
1: I think that that is what people thought the shiny penny was? Right? It is easier to have someone just express their thoughts than to send people out in the field to do reporting. Um, you know. I'm talking to you here but really my what I think about things doesn't matter <laughs> you know what matters is is and what what I think most reporters why most reporters get into the business is because they are curious about the world and they are curious about going out and asking people questions and seeing what is happening and reflecting the world back to people in a way that helps them see what is shaping their lives. Honestly, I think the situation that we are in now in the country has all to do with that 15 years of chasing trends that abandoned ultimately what journalism is supposed to be serving. You know, I mean you you work for a great local news station um but I think if we think about, if, if you take January 6th as a documentary of the failing of the systems in our country, one of those failings is that we allowed local journalism to crumble and disappear. Pub- public media stepped in in a really valiant way as local newspapers failed. But if you look across the country, I'm, I'm based in Michigan, and I'm from Ohio. And if you look across the country and you look at where people have to go for their information and the lack of, and the communities with a lack of people on the ground who can simply tell them what's happening in their own neighborhood. And, and if you have, if you have a system where journalism is just people on TV from someplace that you're not at all connected to, telling you how the people in this myopic city are doing things that are affecting you. And nobody's telling you about your own zoning board or your own school board or your own police department or your own sheriff's office. You start to have this warped opinion that these information centers are somehow the puppets that are at the root of everything and it both lets local communities off the hook for being invested and involved in their own in their own systems and structures and it weakens all of our systems and structures and i and i think you know we can blame tech companies for that. But I think journalism failed to make a case for why and how it was important in people's lives. And in the past five years or so, um, I think journalism has recognized that and has started to reinvest in, in local news and to try to make the case for what journalists do but it wasn't until somebody was out loud calling us the enemy and people were beating up journalists at press conferences and news organizations were having to station security guards with their reporters that we started actually becoming very serious about making this case.
0: It, it got me thinking about there was a, a piece in Politico that I said, that's where I found you. And they did a piece. It was it was uh, really interesting. It was is the media doomed? And they talked to 16 or 17 different people about where's journalism going in the next 15 years. And, and you're, I remember reading uh, your take, which was a big focus on local. So the next 15 years, how do you think this industry is going to change? Or is it that you think it has to change to survive?
1: I think it has to change to survive. I think it already is starting to. And I think that there are um, a lot of really impressive local efforts, people doing very deep journalism about things that may never get national attention. I think we have to be all right with that. You know, it, it doesn't just because a story doesn't reach the level of being talked about on one of the primetime cable network shows. That's that's not the that's not the that can't be the barometer of whether or not a story is important. Um, and I would say this about you know the New York Times and the Washington Post as well. They have both I mean they're they're both doing tremendous journalism. The LA Times is making a fantastic comeback, and we've got a few regional papers that are holding on, but I think at the community level at the ground level, thinking about local journalism in a way that is better than it was before, in a way that is more reflective of the diversity of the communities they serve more, um, in a way that's more focused on accountability and, and really looking critically at systems, that's what's going to get us back, I think, to a, get us back. I'm careful about saying back because I'm not I don't want to be overly nostalgic about the way things were, but I think it, it would help us get to a place where people can be functioning, productive citizens because they're armed with information.
0: Again, you're listening to The Reporter Studio. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez, and this week's guest is Lynette Clementson, director of the Wallace House and the Knight Wallace Fellowship for Journalists at the University of Michigan. We're talking about the need for more local journalism. We're going to return to this conversation in a moment, and I just wanted to say I hope that you're enjoying the conversation. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, but I'm going to ask two things of you. First of all, wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you don't mind, please subscribe. And if you could leave a review, rate and review, that's what they always say, right? But really, seriously, it does help the podcast. If you believe the podcast is providing you with valuable information, or if it's providing you a valuable service, I really do appreciate it. Also, I would love to hear from you. What are your thoughts on journalism? Again, this is... Not about just talking with other journalists. I'd, I'd love to hear from people who have never met a journalist. I'd love to talk to people who think the news is fake. Ask a question, please. Just sincerely ask a question because I'd love to connect with you and maybe help you understand a little bit more. Find us at thereporterstudio.com or again on the YouTube page, The Reporter Studio. Just to mention, this podcast is a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated, and I want to tell you about another podcast coming out later this summer from the same company. It's called Planet Earth 2072.
1: Further into the future, things are going to become more and uncertain. The people who are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground, and that's and going to, going to result dense.
0: in a significant sea level rise. Capitalist maybe tackle this issue point. and address it in a meaningful way. We're by events film. that we can't predict, your we sisters, can project, project
1: things. And then that's five, six, seven people. And the change group goes on That on. is more privileged and that is not dealing with climate effects on a regular anybody basis. anybody
0: to be suspicious of people who claim to know what Miami will look like in 10 or 20 years, let alone 50 years? No one can guess what exactly will happen in 50 years except that South Florida will likely not look much like it does today. The oceans will have risen, flooding will be a bigger challenge, and things are likely to be hotter. Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, we asked the question, what will Miami look like in 50 years? What will happen and how will we prepare? We spoke with researchers, politicians, and advocates about their fears for the future.
1: You know, it's gonna be harder to anticipate what is going to happen from day to day. And the people who are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground in very dense urban Uh landscapes.
0: And that's going to result in a significant sea level rise, maybe adding 20% to those numbers I just gave you. We also spoke with members of Gen Z.
1: We can project them, but we really don't know what this climate catastrophe is going to look like. No matter what, that's not in your control, and I think that You know, for acknowledging the problem now, we can definitely stop it from becoming much worse. We want to better our
0: society, naturally. I think everyone does. The question of the future, what can we expect? Planet Earth 2072, the podcast, comes out June 2022. planet earth 2072 is out later in june go to the website planet earth 2072.com or you can find it on facebook now let's get back to our conversation with lynette clementson director of the wallace house at the university of michigan One of the things, though, a little bit of pushback here is you think about that local, the need for the local. It might, it's going to be easier in like, say, for example, in communities like mine. So, you know, the station that I work for, the the public radio station in South Florida covers this big, this big area of, of, you know, from Palm Beach County all the way down to Miami. Um, But it has the resources to do it. And I think that you'll see in bigger cities or bigger metropolitan areas, the resources will be there, but there's still going to be those areas where you have those news deserts where there just isn't the support. How do we how do we overcome that challenge?
1: It's the business challenge hasn't changed. I, I think that the hurdle that you know why we started running after all of these solutions that turned out to be detrimental was because of a, of a of a failed business model um, and the kind of advertising models that supported local news in the past that's not really going to to come back in a meaningful way but I don't know that I I don't know that I truly believe that there aren't resources to support journalism
0: do you think? And this is kind of the irony, in some ways, that those big tech companies are putting money into some organizations. Into, you know, they're part of the solution. They could be part of the solution. They're also part of the problem. I don't, you know, this is.
1: I mean, which has, in some ways, always been the case, right? It, It is not like, I mean, newspapers were lucky if the if the family that owned them stayed out of the way of the editorial and didn't try to meddle and just supported the reporting. But it has always been the case that people who support journalism, that there's got to be something, there's got to be some sort of a wall protecting the journalists, the journalism from the interests of the people producing the journalism. That has always been the case. And so I, I think that the tech companies know that, that they owe something to To the system, to help. Um, and then journalists have to be who journalists are. We have to be critical. We have to know that that if you take $100,000 from Google or Meta to help start uh, or pay for a reporter or two in your local area, you have to enter those agreements with an understanding about what that money does and doesn't do what it doesn't doesn't buy right and, and and to um understand the self interest where the money's coming from and really protect the integrity of what the money is going toward and and i think that there in the same way that you know there are people in every state that can support a symphony or a public library or uh, you know um, a theater that or an art museum, that we have to make the case that those same people, that some of their money needs to go to support journalism. And um, and then I have to think that, I, and I think that we have to make the case that reporting costs money. It, there's, just, there's just, I just don't think that there's a way around it. I can tell you what I think about something, but until I go do the reporting and dig and find records and talk to people and verify my facts, which takes time, um, it's just to have good journalism, it, it, it it's not something that is best done on the cheap.
0: So I want to come back to, to something that you said a little while ago, is how journalism is had failed to, I guess, and I'm paraphrasing here, so what you were talking about, how the messaging to the public, we failed in our messaging to them as to who we are and what we do. You know, I know and I've heard from a lot of people and I've I've always grown up being taught, hey, this isn't a popularity contest. We're not here to be loved. We're here to seek the truth. But at the same time, we do have to try to help people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it so they don't attack us for it. But what is that messaging? What are we doing wrong? Do we need to go on a PR campaign to help people understand what a journalist is?
1: It's a tricky question. I mean, I, I think PR campaigns only go so far. Um, because people understand it as PR. They understand it in some respects as spin. And so I think that, you know, I mean, this is one thing that I think the industry is starting to learn from the really fantastic data journalists who have, you know, really become integral to our newsrooms, that it's that old math assignment. You don't get full points unless you show your work. Um, And I think we have to show our work and we have to explain to people, okay, this is the story we we created. How do we do that? Why do we have to talk to people? It, you know, I did a story recently where I was, uh, it had to do with, with criminal justice and I was talking to a family, someone was in jail. And the woman you know, was talking to me about arrests and I just explained, now the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go and look up all the records of the arrests and I'm going to read the police version of the account of that arrest and I'm going to compare the two. It doesn't mean I don't believe what you're saying, but for the work to be credible, I have to look at it from a number of different angles. Um, And and I think to the extent that we can explain to people how we do our work and why we're doing it that way, and to the extent that we can be transparent about when we make mistakes, um, that that will get us some way toward having people's trust. And again, this is where I think local is where you build that up because if there are journalists in a community who are running into the people they're covering at the grocery store and at the dry cleaners and at the coffee shop and at the park, um, then you can have casual conversation. If somebody thinks you did a terrible job on a story, you can have a conversation and say, yeah, I know you may not have liked that. And here's, here's why it was that way. If I'm wrong, tell me why I'm wrong. Okay. Maybe we'll go back and look at that in a follow up to that story. But when you can, but when you can be face to face with people about, um, about how and why things are done in a certain way. Again, I think it makes I think it makes the reporting stronger and it may not change everybody's mind, but at least people can see that there's a process to it and it's not just people sitting somewhere far away making things uh, you gotta
0: let them into the kitchen to see how everything is made. You do. You gotta let them in. You know, maybe that in every 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 few years, you know, we release a movie like Spotlight, <laughs> and that could help too sometimes. But you know, it's interesting, and I'll finish with this because you, you know, the work you're doing right now, uh, you're working with younger journalists. You're catching them at a certain point in their career. But I wondered from what you're seeing. With, with the younger journalists that are coming up in the business, their approach to this work compared to when you and me were coming up.
1: I think the future is very promising. I think the future is very promising. So at, I, I um, run the Wallace House Center for Journalists at the University of Michigan. We have two programs, the Knight Wallace Fellowships, which works with, with, with more accomplished journalists, Um, So typically the people in the fellowship are in their 30s, 40s, sometimes in their 50s. Um, And the Livingston Awards for young journalists awards excellence in journalism by journalists under 35. And so, so I tend to see journalists sort of in those early years of their career and at the stage in their career where they've had some big accomplishments and are trying to figure out what they're going to do next. But I'm also on a university campus where I see students who are interested in journalism.
0: I am optimistic too about the future. I know things are, it's a strange world, but, but Lynette, I really appreciate this conversation and and everything. And, and yeah, thank you for the insight. I really do. And I hope that the listeners also appreciate it as well.
1: It was a real pleasure. And I'm so glad that you're having these conversations too, um, You know, journalism is sometimes unglamorous, but it is never uninteresting because understanding how people live and the challenges they face and the things that they're doing to overcome those challenges is never uninteresting. And it is never unimportant, not even in the smallest town in the country. It is never unimportant. There are a lot of people who are innately curious who are drawn to journalism because they want to sit and listen to people's stories and uh and so i i I really thank you for trying to illuminate that for people well thank you for being in the reporter's studio
0: you know i'm really grateful for our conversation with lynette Again, she's the director of the Wallace House and the Livingston Awards at the University of Michigan, also the Knight Wallace Fellowship for Journalists. She's also a contributing editor at Politico. And I love what she said about the next generation of journalists you know, who are now just entering the field. She's optimistic about this group taking the baton and leading the industry in the right direction. And I agree. I think that this younger generation of journalists have to save the industry. They have to make it stronger. And perhaps this may be the Renaissance period that they lead, and I'm all for it. Now, one thing I'll add though, is I say this to all young journalists getting into the business, please don't believe that the only place to find the best stories are in the big cities. You know, the world isn't centered around just New York, Washington DC, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Chicago. I always used to tell my students when I taught that a great journalist can go anywhere and find stories in any community. I could drop you off in Juneau, Alaska, or Lincoln, Nebraska, or somewhere in the hills of Idaho or Montana, and it doesn't matter. If you're a great storyteller, you're going to find great stories anywhere I drop you off. You're going to find the, the best opportunities really don't always exist in the big cities a great storyteller is going to find great stories everywhere and anywhere. And local journalism is where a lot of the best opportunities are going to exist for a long time. Just my piece of advice. Well, coming up next week on The Reporter Studio. We launched the podcast. It was in Apple's, you know, top 10 the first week we sent it out there. I think everybody is super connected to what's happening in space, right? Because we're we're, we're all really interested in our place in this world. Right? We're interested in where we, where we are, where we're going, and where we've been. And I think all of those questions can be answered through space exploration. Space reporter Brendan Byrne from Public Radio in Orlando. We're gonna talk about what it's like covering the space industry and dreams of one day possibly opening up a donut shop on the moon. I'm not kidding. Brendan Byrne, our next guest on The Reporter Studio. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at News Media Host, also on LinkedIn. You can find this podcast in a lot of different places, from iTunes to Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Podbean. And don't forget, you can always go to the website, thereporterstudio.com. Post your comments or questions there. Rate and review the podcast. As always, I appreciate it. And we'll talk again next week. The Reporter Studio is a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated.